Good afternoon. And welcome everyone here at Albany Law School and on Zoom. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Leslie Stein, the director of the Government Law, the Government Law Center here at Albany Law School and the home now of the Fair Trial Free Press Conference. We are very pleased to support the conference and to be able to present to you um, programs such as we have today, where we have discussions between judges, lawyers, and journalists regarding the interplay of the related legal, constitutional, and ethical considerations of various scenarios. I am very privileged today to begin the program by introducing Albany Law School's President and Dean, Cinnamon Pignon Carlarne. Um, Dean Carlarne joined Albany Law School in July of this year and comes to us from the Ohio State University Moritz College of Law, where she was the Associate Dean for Faculty and Intellectual Life and the Robert J. Lynn Chair in Law. Dean Carlarne is a leading international expert in environmental and climate change law policy. She has quickly become an advocate for the well-being and advancement of Albany Law School students, faculty, and staff, and she has demonstrated her commitment to a collaborative, diverse, and inclusive community. She is a strong supporter of the work of the Government Law Center, including its collaboration with the Fair Trial Free Press Conference. And I now invite Dean Carlarn to say a few welcoming words. Thank you. So let me make sure I can hear. Okay, good, good afternoon, everyone. I'm really thrilled to have the opportunity to welcome you to Albany Law School and to really help kick off this important event. I want to begin first with a few things. So first, thank you and a huge shout out to our Government Law Center, um, including our uh, very dedicated director and our deputy directors, so Judge Stein and Patrick Woods, who's right here, for all of their amazing work on this program. And also a huge thank you to Chell Miller, who is just a genius behind everything that happens. Uh, and a very special thanks to our moderators today, who are also, of course, two key players in the fair trial free press endeavor, the Honorable Albert uh, Rosenblatt, and who is, of course, a retired judge on the New York Court of Appeals, and then Rex Smith, who is the former editor of the Albany Times Union. So thank you to the two of you, and thank you to all of the panelists who are here today. And to those of you who've joined us, we have a pretty amazing group gathered. It's going to be a terrific conversation. This event um, really speaks to and kind of aligns with the mission of Albany Law School in many ways. So of course, as you probably know, our mission at the law school is to provide a really rich learning environment to have a lot of rigorous and innovative academic programs in a setting that really advances all our thinking on liberty, justice, ethics, integrity, critical thinking, and the search for truth. And the conversation that's gonna to happen today really aligns with and advances that mission. So that is critical thinking and emphasis on justice and a focus not only on the search for truth, but also really importantly on the communication of truth. So hopefully this conversation will encourage us to think about how to advance communication and education within and across the distinct, but very kind of intimately tied disciplines of law law enforcement and journalism to think about how to really promote informed, balanced and fair coverage of judicial proceedings. These are goals and interests that really advance critical thinking around access to the operation of and the understanding of our justice systems, topics that truly are at the heart of who we are as an institution and what law and legal education is all about and seeks to do. 
So again, welcome to Albany Law School. Welcome to the speakers and to all of our guests. We're really thrilled to have you here and really looking forward to an engaged and really informative discussion. Thank you, Dean Carlarn. Uh, I also uh, would like to recognize and thank a few people in addition to those already mentioned by the Dean who were instrumental in, in making this program happen. Um, the Government Law Center really consists of a team of very talented and dedicated people with a variety of skills and experience. Uh, and without each and every one of them, uh, we could not be putting on the programs such as this that we have been fortunate enough to hold. Um, and uh, our staff members uh, who have been intimately involved in this program include Richard Rifkin, our legal director, um, as well as Chell Miller, Lisa Rivage, who is, does all things related to the CLE credits that you're going to get. Uh, Tamar Reiner, our GLC coordinator, which is no easy task, and the Albany Law School Communications Department. In addition, we have the Fair Trial Free Press Board um, uh, officers and members, Judge Rosenblatt, Rex Smith, Mike Greigel, Diane Kennedy, Steve Clark, as well as Patrick Words and John Gross. So today we are proud to present to you a discussion addressing the legal, political, and ethical issues that arise after a fictional gubernatorial candidate has been indicted on federal financial fraud charges and a turbulent trial ensues. Panelists will discuss the inter rights to attend and report on trials, including social media, gag orders, anonymous juries, police conduct, and protection of the press and its sources. You should all have received the hypothetical that they will be working from in your program materials. And um, you also have in your, in your materials uh, a full bios of our amazing, uh, talented, experienced uh, panelists as well as our moderators. So I'm not gonna take up any time regaling uh, you with, with their accomplishments and who they are. questions in the Q&A box. Finally, don't forget to submit your affidavit for CLE credit if you're seeking a credit and your, um, your uh, uh, reviews of today's program. With that, I'm going to turn it over to Judge Rosenblatt and Jess. Okay, thank you very much, Judge. This is uh, terrific. I might add there are uh, a lot of journalism students also, as I understand, paying attention here. Uh, so for you, as well as for the CLE credit uh, hopefuls, uh, I will be reading you a code word twice during this presentation. So you'll need to write down that code word uh, to be able to prove that you were actually here. So we're going to ask these people at this panel 
to play certain roles. You're going to be uh, called upon to put yourself into the place of folks in this hypothetical as we go through this. And Judge Rosenblatt and I will sort of alternate. And if he thinks of something that's very uh, important to, uh, to, to step forward and intercede with, uh, he'll do that. And we will not read entirely to you this hypothetical because we will assume that you're reading it. But just broadly to explain to you what's going on here, this involves a very wealthy business person, a woman named Jamie Tusk, uh, who has a privately held international real estate firm. You may be aware of uh, people who are prominent in the world who have privately held international real estate firms who find themselves uh, subject to uh, legal action. Though uh, everything here is, of course, uh, how do we put it at the beginning of novels? Um, entirely uh, fictional and any similarity to events and individuals living or dead is purely coincidental. Um, and thanks to Mike Greigel uh, uh, for writing this hypothetical and leading us in this, in this area. Tusk is such a successful uh, and, uh, and uh, dramatic person that she has emerged as somebody with political influence. Uh, and is indeed considered uh, to be potentially uh, even a presidential candidate uh, for the United States. Uh, but there is some question about this. Uh, and uh, she has uh, sought a $500 million loan from a commercial bank, but her loan application seems to have had some uh, erroneous information on it. Uh, so um, there is uh, a US attorney uh, named Alex Gruff who has convened a grand jury uh, after an investigation uh, that has indicted this uh, real estate magnate on uh, numerous financial fraud charges, including materially falsifying loan application information. Tusk, who is a great user of social media, took exception to that, of course, and called upon her many, many supporters uh, to show up uh, at the uh, courthouse uh, I'm sorry, let me not get ahead of the story here. She's said that she's innocent. Uh, she castigates the U.S. attorney as moronic and unjust, says these are fake charges. There's a fake case. And Tusk has encouraged her supporters to attend her arraignment uh, in order to protest her persecution by the federal government. So the U.S. attorney moves for a gag order for the duration of the trial. Uh, and you can read in the hypothetical what that gag order uh, suggests. But let me just turn first, um, if we could please, to get this uh, conversation underway uh, to Martin Bell, who earlier in his career was uh, uh, in the role of a prosecutor, assistant uh, attorney in the Southern District of New York. Uh, and let me just uh, ask you, uh, Mr. Bell, as the prosecutor that you might imagine yourself to be here, the gag order, um, you know, implicates the uh, the scope of the trial court's authority to restrict the First Amendment uh, rights of trial participants. Uh, and uh, this is especially true, of course, where you're dealing with uh, a prominent defendant. Does You might offer what might be a justification for a gag order and whether, in particular, in the 21st century, the nature of social media might play a role in whether you might be looking for a gag order at this point that you might not have thought of doing, say, 20 years ago when you were a prosecutor? Yes, you can. Please be candid. There we go. There we go. More easily be candid when I can be heard. 
Um, I can't judge. I can't imagine applying for this gag order. Um, the most important thing to the U.S. Attorney's Office is to put together a case and run it through the machinery of justice in a way that it will actually survive appellate scrutiny. And this seems to me to invite a number of issues um, that are not worth the price of admission uh, concerning the constitutional rights of uh, the general public to um, not only their own speech, uh, but to a fully public proceeding. Um, we've got pretty thick skins. Uh, we public servants in uh, prosecutors' offices um, and judges' chambers, I think, as well. And um, it is only, uh, we, we, we get used to, particularly in a place like my old office um, in the Southern District of New York, um, circus-like atmospheres um, reasonably often. Uh, it becomes old hat to the marshals, to everyone else who sort of puts up with it and ensures the safety of, of, of folks coming in and out. The only occasion in my 10 and a half years on the job that I could remember anything close to this happening was an individual whose name I forget who made it his business to hand out pamphlets um, encouraging jury nullification um, on the jury line just outside of the Daniel Patrick Moynihan courthouse um, and who also occasionally sort of threw himself down theatrically in front of the line of people getting into court. Um, he was actually charged with obstructing uh, you know, the, the criminal legal proceedings there. Um, short of something like that, um, we wouldn't see a gag order like this as worth the price of permission. Now, we certainly wouldn't do it unless we were the second movers. And perhaps there's an opportunity here for Tusk um, to earn a response of that sort. If there are particular concerns about the jury pool um, or if it is repeated conduct that one that meanders into the area of uh, either a, a threat or publicity. I think the weaponization of social media really doesn't come into play until it's something that could affect um, people who are drawn into the process because they're simply observing their duty as citizens, the name, doxing the names of individual jurors, that sort of thing. Um, and that's conduct that I could imagine uh, being worthy of this sort of um, uh, application and some sort of judicial admonishment. Um, but we, I think, generally see extra sort of procedural commentary, um, even if it encourages people to come in the courtroom and create disorder um, as something that we would rather absorb um, than muddy the record with. Well, let me just see if uh, another prosecutor next to you, John Flynn, Erie County DA, president of the New York State DA's Association. Uh, can you imagine uh, such a gag order? If, uh, and have you ever moved for such a thing where you might have a defendant calling you on uh, to millions of social media, uh, uh, an audience of millions of social media, moronic, the fake charges, persecution by the government? You think you might uh, try to get some action there? Well, I have never done it myself, but ironically, uh, I have been the recipient of a gag order. Um, 
Um, as I think probably everyone um, uh, remembers, uh, unfortunately, about uh, a year ago, we had a mass shooting in Buffalo, New York. Uh, I, I prosecuted that case. Uh, and the, um, the, the defense counsel uh, in that case uh, applied for a gag order uh, to uh, prohibit me from speaking to the media. And you know, I found it a little ironic because if anyone knows me back in Buffalo, I I only speak to the media after the initial arraignment on the case. Uh, it's my my policy that I never speak to the media uh, during the during the case. Um, I you know what once an arraignment happens. Um, I then usually, uh, for, for a high-profile case, uh, speak about the uh, you know the indictment, the arrest, the arraignment, and that's it. Uh, but in this particular case here, um, I I actually violated my own principle um, for for a number of reasons. Uh, you know, we, obviously we had the entire country, CNN, Fox, everyone was you know. At the courthouse, there were, you know, numerous elected officials who were giving press conferences daily. Um, the, the president himself, President Biden, was talking about this case. Governor Hochul, I mean, everyone under the sun was talking about this case and basically out there saying that, you know, the defendant is guilty, you know, he's a racist, et cetera, et cetera. And, and my concern was a fair trial. I wanted to ensure that. There was a fair trial, and I was concerned about a change of venue. Um, you know, in our in our hypothetical here, uh, Metropolis. Uh, you know, we can assume that this is a extremely large city. In our hypothetical here, um, you know, Buffalo is big, but not that big. And you know, I was very concerned about uh, you know a fair jury pool in the future. I was concerned about if too much um, was was being talked about in the media, that the defense would make a change of venue, and I did not want that. So, uh, within a week of the arraignment, uh, I gave a second press conference, uh, which I never do. And um, after that second press conference, I, I said something that the defense didn't like, <laughs> and they applied for a gag order. And I did not oppose it. Um, I said, fine, I don't care. I, I don't need a gag order because I'm not going to speak anyway. But if you want to issue the gag order, judge, go ahead. I did not oppose it. Um, and so there was a gag order in place uh, throughout that proceeding. Uh, you know, he ended up pleading guilty within, you know, eight months. Uh, and so once he pled guilty, the gag order obviously was lifted. But for that period of time, um, in a very high-profile case, uh, there was a gag order in place. Um, I think, uh, by the me. way, during that time, did uh, <laughs> do you think any of your assistants had any uh, on-background conversations with uh, journalists? No. Uh, no, no. Rosemary Armeo, investigative no. journalist with considerable experience. In your work as a reporter, did you ever have prosecutors on background uh, speaking to you about cases pending before? Trial? I did a lot of work in federal court and prosecutors sought me out. So did judges 
and like my view is that everyone in the court system should answer all the reporters' questions right away, tell them everything they want. There'd be no problems at all. <laughs> uh, uh, Mark Mahoney, uh, that's your experience as a reporter also? Have you dealt with prosecutors and defense lawyers who would speak to you on background, perhaps, without wishing uh, to be public identified? Yeah, I, I would have that to some occasion, but um, kind of just so you understand kind of things, not uh, not for anything that they, they wanted us to publish or to leak out so that we could influence mm -hmm. the other side or anything like that. Interesting. I'll tell you that I used to have uh, DA bureau chiefs who would uh, open their files to me, actually, uh, with the uh, uh, understanding that it was on a source basis. So, um, you know, this does happen uh, just for the young journalists in the room. I just want you to know you don't have to necessarily assume that the, the stance that Mr. Flynn is taking ends your opportunity to get information. Uh, but you know, to the to the uh, question of the gag order, uh, uh, Roy Gutterman, uh, First Amendment expert here, would you say that it's permissible under the First Amendment for there to be uh, such a gag order as this? And bear in mind, we have a contemporaneous experience right now involving this uh, real estate magnate. Uh, his name escapes me. <laughs> I think there are elements of this gag order that uh, go above and beyond uh, the propriety under the First Amendment. I do believe our our target of this case it does have some First Amendment rights to to speak and to use social media. I also believe a court has an obligation to ensure uh, a fair trial and safety of all personnel involved. Uh, my biggest problem with this gag order is the way it might affect uh, the media. Uh, I, it's one thing to bind litigants in a case. It's one thing to bind a defendant in a case from, from speaking, maybe even a prosecutor, but to, to rope in the media uh, as a potential uh, liable party for this, I think goes beyond the First Amendment. Does the media have standing to intervene to challenge the gag order? If the media is named, I would say the media has an, has an opportunity to intervene and at least put its uh, arguments on the record and perhaps even convince a, a court that, they should, that the media should not be bound by this, this order. In this hypothetical, uh, Judge Blaine Justice, Judge Justice, uh, U.S. District Court, uh, who was assigned the case, entered the gag order on an emergency interim basis. Uh, Judge D'Agostino, can you imagine a circumstance where one of your colleagues might do such a thing? I can, but I want to begin by saying that I don't know if you know what it's like if you haven't been a judge to preside over a criminal case. I can tell you that my law clerks tell each crop of new law clerks that uh, Judge D isn't the same when she's on a criminal trial as she is when she's on a civil trial. Because when I have a, a criminal trial, every day I'm saying to myself, I have to give this defendant a fair trial. And I say to my law clerks, on our watch, someone who did not commit a crime should not go to jail. So we have to be at the top of our game. So in terms of you know gag orders, there are a few things that I will say. First of all, you have to have, and you have to state as a judge, a very specific reason, in my view, why you are imposing 
any gag order in a case such as this. The seminal case is Nebraska Press versus Maxwell, and that case set forth three factors. Um, first, that publicity would harm the defendant's right to a fair trial. So if you're a judge and you believe that, you have to make a specific record of it. Two, you have to apply the least restrictive means um, to enforce the gag order. And three, you have to demonstrate as a judge that it will be effective uh, to ensure a, fa a fair trial. So these are the minimal factors that you have to state. And you have to be careful about prior restraint on free speech when you're issuing a gag order. And as you just heard, there's a big difference between issuing a gag order to the participants in the trial from a gag order to the press. Many courts will issue gag orders for the participants in the trial and say, these are the things that you definitely should not be talking about. But a general gag order uh, for the press not to be reporting uh, on certain things could be very, very problematic. Um, Justice Frankfurter made a statement uh, years ago when he talked about trial by newspaper. And he said that as courts, we have to be careful uh, to tear participants from their moorings um, of impartiality by the undertow of extraneous influence. But I can't, I can rarely think of a factual circumstance where I would just impose a general gag order on the press because I'm concerned about the defendant's rights. In the Northern District of New York, if you get on our website, you will see that there are specific things that we tell people who are starting a criminal trial. It's our local rule 2023. And we say that statements concerning the following subject matters presumptively involve a substantial likelihood that their public dissemination will interfere with a fair trial. And then we list them, uh, prior criminal records, uh, prior indictments, uh, the existence or contents of any confession or admission statement that the accused has given or the failure to make any statements, the performance of any examinations or tests, the identity or the credibility of prospective witnesses. I'm not gonna read all of them to you, but they're right on our, our webpage and Anybody who's beginning a criminal trial can take a look at these and understand what is fair and what's not fair. I had a trial this year where it was being reported every day that the defendants were connected to the mafia. The word, the M word never came up during the trial, okay? And I questioned the jurors beforehand. Have you read anything about these defendants? They all said that they had not. And, you know, I have to assume that they were telling me the truth. And... Of course, we tell jurors every single day of the trial not to read any press accounts. And I, I'm a little bit naive. I, I mean, I do think the jurors try to follow that. So while the mafia word was almost like in every story, every day I'm telling the jurors not to look at it. So bottom line, um, the gag, a, a general gag order, a preemptive strike is probably not the best way for a judge to go. All right, so we're not getting a gag order in real life here uh, with our uh, with this scenario. 
we can leave that issue behind. But what we're going to move to now is what happens at the scene when the uh, defendant's uh, supporters have congregated, a couple thousand of them, maybe more, and there are going to be clashes where there are violent uh, outcomes. The next, uh, the next chapter here, going. How's that? At the next chapter of this uh, fascinating hypothetical that Mike Dreigel uh, created, uh, there's an arraignment. And as you might imagine, in a case of this kind with massive public interest at the arraignment, the supporters of the person accused, uh, Tusk, uh, show up. And surely, as one might expect and imagine, violence breaks out supporters against other supporters on the other side of it. The police come to the scene and there's a melee. The police then see the reporters at the scene. They believe that the reporters are getting too close to the melee action. And uh, one of the police officers seizes, grabs the cell phone of one of, our, uh, of one of the reporters and uh, confiscates it and also has the reporters move away from the scene and detains them at a location far farther distant from where the action is going on. So that brings us to how we translate this from a hypothetical into what, at least through this session, would be the real world. Uh, and I'm going to ask, uh, I say, I'll start with Council of the State Police, whether there are, whether the circumstances justified the seizure of Scoop's cell phone. I'll start with that question and ask the Council of the State Police about that. Sure, yeah. It, you know, if there was one paragraph that sort of jumped out to me, or the, you know, these two paragraphs here were, were certainly this, uh, what we're talking about here. Um, you know, the one thing we got to keep in mind, right, are police, what they're there for, um, you know, keeping the peace, making sure people aren't getting hurt, health and safety. And, and they're, they're faced all the time with making split second decisions, right? So in this instance, without more, there, I wish there were a little bit more facts in here, right? You know, it's... it's well, you can add them. I can add them. All right, well, great. She was using the cell phone to injure somebody else. In that circumstance, you're being arrested, right? And then you're, you're, you're getting... But, it, but in, in this case, where it's just... A to say that if she used the cell phone and hit somebody else over the head with it, uh, that would be assault. We're not going to let you off that easy. Right. Sure. If she hit somebody with the cell phone, <laughs> take it away. Right. There's that's, an arrest. That's There's too a easy. Incident to an arrest, and you're taking the phone. Right? Yeah. Instrument. Uh, yeah. That's know, too phone. easy. We're gonna. We're but in this circumstance, where we're just talking about, you know, if the the officer goes up and just takes the phone in that in the in, you know in that again in this circumstance, just like that, with nothing more, after the fact, you're talking about a problem, right? Is it a it, is it, it's a seizure? You're taking the phone. There's no there's no arrest associated with it. So you run into that. As far as the, you know, the, the paragraph in general, like I said to begin with, the, the police are there, again, health and safety, they're making split second decisions. In, in today's world now, it's very easy to say after you see a camera, body cam, people with, with cell phones, you know, making those decisions, you know, getting into the mind of the police officer at the time is really what we're talking about in terms of 
what's reasonable in the totality of the circumstances. This alone right here, where he just walks up and takes his cell phone of somebody, I think okay. you'd have a problem after the fact. Yeah, I think a lot of people would agree with you when you say there's a problem. Is that another way of saying that there's no right to seize it? Again, in these circumstances, I would probably without right. without anything more, no, certainly no arrest associated right. with it. Yeah, I don't, I don't think you have, I don't think you have the the uh, the legal right to seize that phone. All right. So on the one hand, if she uses the cell phone as a weapon and hits someone over the head, yes, seize it. But in this case, no seizure. Other than using the cell phone as a weapon, are there any circumstances that you can hypothesize, make up any fact you can in which the police would be authorized to seize a cell phone from a reporter who is not using it as a weapon to hit someone over the head with? That's a tough question. I think it is a tough question. I think it's a, in, in, in this fact pattern, I think it's going to be really hard to get there. I mean, if there's an ongoing investigation into the reporter, understanding whether or not there's something else out there, meaning she's using a cell phone to commit any number of crimes that, you know, could be appropriate. For example, that would be wire fraud. I mean, any, any, any number of federal crimes that could be, you know, available or state crimes, obviously. But how could she commit wire fraud using a cell phone reporting? What, where was the crime? This is my my hypothetical would be, you know, in, in order to, to get the cell phone, there would have to be other facts associated. But in this one, I don't think oh, like saying, OK, using the cell phone, saying uh, lying and and uh, urging violence. OK. All right. Well, you're I see you're shaking your head. Yes, go ahead. Oh, my God, I'm outraged. This is <laughs> this is like double First Amendment violations against freedom of the press that is a reporter at a newsworthy, important event gathering news. And second, it's um, a violation of, um, um, well, okay, that's enough to begin with. Um, and uh, it's an increasing problem. We're seeing it. The police don't have to be effective. There's no way they're going to win this case. It, it, it will be thrown out. There will be no charges, but the police will temporarily remove reporters from the scene so they can't do their job, which is what I think they really intend to do. And that must be must be fought. If I were that reporter, I'd be borrowing anybody else's cell phone I could get, calling my editor and send, send eight other reporters down here that are keeping us away. I would cover it doubly as much, and I'd bring a case later because that is a violation of my rights to, uh, to, to report. I think this is a case where the legal profession is trying to protect, to protect police who are not doing their job, who are who are just really, oh, right to protest, of course, that's the other First Amendment, right? It's um, the people who are there are also not getting fair coverage or their protest is being made less effective because you're shutting down the press. I, I think it's just inexcusable. Wire fraud, come on. Uh, I, would, I would grant you, I'll grant you that uh, seizing a cell phone with no reason other than the fact that she was reporting that would be uh, antithetical to the First Amendment. The uh, cordoning them off is a different question. Uh, and whether any, uh, can you foresee any circumstances in which the police would say to the reporter, look, you know, you're right in a line of fire here. Uh, you know, just you want to step back because there's violence breaking out. So you can cover all you want, but I want you to stand 
15 feet away. Is there anything wrong with that? No, and that's typical and, and obeyed by any reporter. If you're at an accident scene, a police scene, a criminal scene, you expect that. If you're smart, you come in early before those cordons are set up and you get around it and you bring in another reporter who can sneak around them. But you do pay attention to it. And you you take your lumps. If you go across a line, a cop or a firefighter is going to chew you out and cut you off and you accept that. But that's not what's happening in the country right now. What we're seeing are Black Lives Matter protests where reporters covering, doing actual their job on an important story were being shut down and arrested. No charges against them later because you can't charge them. They're not doing anything wrong. It's all designed to get them out of the way. So what's, what's, what's the remedy? Shouldn't there be a remedy of uh, something akin to false arrest? or false detention? Yeah, I, I actually would like, our, our media is increasingly weak. You don't even have a lot of reporters, much less uh, legal power. But yeah, there should be pushback against this events of police departments. The worst case was in Marion, Kansas recently, where um, it, uh, city officials basically didn't like a report that went in the newspaper, so they raided the newspaper office and the home of, of, the, rep of the publisher, um, took material, uh, it was all thrown out. It's 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 getting scary. That should not happen. Even close anything to that happening with our First Amendment, and yet it is. Mark, go ahead. Yeah, it would, Mark, it would, you it would. It would seem to me that um, that their primary objective should be to um, to keep the media from interfering with them doing their job. I don't know how much of an obligation they have to keep the press safe if the press wants to put itself in danger. Um, the other the, the word that jumped out at me was detaining them. Um, you know, pushing them off to an area, not just where they couldn't see what was going on, but also kind of forbidding them from leaving that area or whatever. And also taking away, not only is the phone, uh, you know, a camera that they could use for to, to record the news events, but it's also their form of communication. Um, so it, it just seems like that, that they crossed the line too far in, in terms of, they got their, they got the reporters out of the way of them you know, uh, controlling the crowd, but it seems like to me as a, as a journalist that they should, that that's where that should stop. Let me ask the professor to weigh in on this. Reporters are never going to win a fight or a battle with police on the at the scene. That that much we know. And the only the only real mechanism is educating law enforcement about the role of the press, the rights of the press in a public place, and the only way to enforce those rights would be an after the fact, some, some sort of after the fact litigation, obviously to get any sort of charges thrown out, but perhaps even a, a section 1983 uh, claim later on for uh, abuse of, uh, of a civil right or a First Amendment right. And enough of those add up and law enforcement will, you know, the next time this happens, perhaps some a law enforcement officer on the street is going to say, well, you know what, I might get in trouble. I get the department sued because I'm arresting somebody for no real reason or taking their phone or anything like that. One other thing to add, in addition to calling your newsroom, you're gonna to have to call your lawyer and you're gonna make that. Yeah. I wanna ask the judge about this. Yes, they now come before you. The reporter comes in and said, your honor, they, they grab my cell phone. Uh, what am I, what's my remedy? Of course they come in with a lawyer and make a motion, but can you just uh, craft out how you think this would play out? Well, I'm thinking about potential litigation and uh, this fact pattern really alleges a Fourth Amendment violation, a taking of the phone, you know, with no probable cause. 
And I had a case many years ago, it did not involve the press, but I think it's timely for the discussion that we're having right now. I had two groups in a municipality, um, a Jewish group and a Palestinian group uh, protesting. Well, actually one group was having um, a picnic and a party and a celebration and one group was protesting. <laughs> the municipal police department decided that um, people were getting too angry at each other so they decided to move the protesting group behind a garage and uh, where they couldn't be seen. Pr prior to that, they were on the street, public street, the entrance of a park with their placards saying what they wanted to say. And the municipal police said, well, no, tempers are flaring. And they, they ushered them literally behind a garage and told them that that's where they could protest. Now they weren't the press, but it's analogous because um, the that group brought a, a lawsuit that was in front of me, and uh, it was based upon free speech and, uh, you know, the right to free assembly. And, you know, it. I settled it the morning of, but it was kind of like, Houston, we have a problem for, for the police because these folks had a right to be protesting where they wanted to be. As far as a 1983 action, yes, you could bring it, but there's this thing called qualified immunity, which uh, I'm sure any municipal police officer would say, I wasn't aware that when I told the reporters to move and to back away that I was violating a clearly established right. I was doing that because I feared that there could be disorder and that there could be uh, a protest of some sort. So yes, those lawsuits can be brought. I don't know precisely how successful they would be, but that is one way that the press could deal with being handled uh, like that by a municipal police force. Is there a way for the, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, is there a way for the press at the scene to overcome this? You, everybody's talking about, well, afterwards you sue the cops, but what can you do at the scene to, to free up the reporters? You said, you know, we all know is that you stand behind this barrier and they're not gonna let you pass it and we're stuck there. But what can you do to immediately to free up the press so that we can continue covering the event and that we aren't put in the position of being detained and losing our equipment and that sort of thing? Wow, you're talking about uh, disobeying an office, uh, uh, an order of the police, which we know in retrospect was invalid. But uh, that that gets us into some dark, into some deep waters. Um, what do you think about that, Your Honor? On on as far as uh, would a 1983 action work under those circumstances if there was resistance by the press? saying, I want my camera back and starting a fight with the officer. Give me back, you have no, no right to take my camera. And we know that the police officer had no right, but can she go to the police officer and start a, a tussle with them? That's a whole different question. You can, but you have to live by the facts of your case. Like we have many 1983 actions involving, for example, incarcerated individuals who will admit that they may have made uh, the first move toward um, a corrections officer, and then the corrections officer responded, or it could be the other way around. The corrections officer will say, yes, I did I did hit that incarcerated individual, but then he sav you know, viciously attacked me. So the fact that both sides made an affirmative action does not mean that there cannot be a 1983 action, but it's kind of like that old 
uh, philosophy that if you started it, uh, you you may be on the losing end. But a jury would listen to that. I think a jury would listen to that. And cell phones, someone takes your cell phone, your your whole life is on your cell phone. So I would think that juries hypothetically would be interested in if they had a case in front of them, but you also have to have an injury. And I don't think this is a big thing that I'm not, you know, well, I get the taking of the cell phone is a constitutional injury. It's a violation of the fourth amendment. So I, I think that you, you would have it there. Yes. You, you could bring a 1983 action. All right. We, so that's a lawsuit and that's a complicated lawsuit. By the time it got adjudicated, with a jury and then an appeal to the second circuit. We're talking about maybe five years. And she's saying, I want my cell phone back. No, so there's a lot of fancy talk about 1983, but I want my cell phone back. So Marcus, Lisa, how would Marcus you go right. about- can I, can I jump in because Please. Mark is right. It's the reporter at the scene wants some sort of relief. And increasingly reporters are disobeying their own lawyer's advice, which is you have to do what the police say, and they're not doing it. They're jumping out of the cordons. They're moving around. They are reporting anyway, and then going into court later and facing the charge, especially in this case. Why are the cops covering their badges and, and they're taking away cell phones? There's a real story here that would go on my front page about police misconduct. Well, ask it's Inspector Durienzo about this, because uh, New York State Police, there is, in this scenario, you know, a cop has been assaulted. A cop got hit on the head by, by a, uh, a, a sign. Uh, cops are under attack. And maybe if your job is to protect the public safety, that includes the intrepid reporter who's put herself in the line of fire. I think Sarah Scoop is the name of this reporter here, not Rosemary Armeo. But in any case, would you, in moving reporters to another position, when Rudy Giuliani was mayor of New York, New York uh, NYPD often would do that. They would move reporters aside, arguing that it was for their own safety. Isn't that possible that you might do that? Um, so first, as far as the name tags, um, I can only talk on behalf of the New York State Police, and we would never cover our name tags. It's not allowed it's a violation of our policy. Um, so that's the first thing. And the second, where the, the police officer was struck in the head um, by a sign, and then he responded uh, by hitting the protester with a club. So, um, you know, that kind of, it's very vague, like what kind of sign was it? Was it a, you know, a paper type sign or was it like a big two by four with nails coming out of it? I mean, there's a big difference here, which we don't really understand. And um, so that whole, that it depends on, you know, your use of force or what's reasonable, what's, what are you justified doing? So there's that. And as far as moving the reporters, no, they're allowed to be where the general public should be. As I mean, we have to maintain the integrity of whatever crime scenes and preserve evidence. So there can't be any um, interference with that. And as long as they're not interfering with our active investigation, they're allowed to film and that's just the way it should be. So I don't see any you know issue with them being there and moving them away. I mean, that's just gonna cause Friction yeah, and really wants to say some about the gay order. I, I would add to as as excuse me. Let me just say a word for just for a second for people at home following along. If you're seeking CLE credit or journalism credit, code word number one. Write this down, folks. If you want credit, code word number one is subpoena. 
S-U-B-P-O-E-N-A, journalists. Okay, please, <laughs> go ahead. Um, as the chief federal law enforcement uh, officer of the region um, and someone who has the ability to prosecute criminal civil rights violations, um, were um, officers to have turned their name tags around prior to uh, an event like this, it would make me more likely to investigate what had happened and would jaundice my view of their intent going into the incident. Were any, per, were any individual officer to uh, take actions uh, beyond the realm of what was necessary in order to maintain order? Just take the other, other side of that though, first for a minute. Um, I, I think that most police agencies in New York State now have a policy about not covering up your name tags, uh, but um, there, there is a reason why they why officers did it. They, they, they did it in Buffalo um, during the George Floyd protests that, that occurred because when they when they were out there, uh, there were individuals who were taping the police officers and taping, you know, recording their names and then going on social media and posting where these police officers live, their addresses and whatnot. And so it was a it was a safety concern for the officer and their family. Um, that's what that, that you know, that's why I believe some police officers cover their names up over the years. So I, I'll, I'll push back a little bit on if there's any kind of nefarious uh, conduct on the police officers automatically by covering their name tags up when in reality the real reason probably was that they were protecting themselves and their family so i'll stick up for the police in that regard uh natalie rocklebank uh the uh, public defenders association is that is that persuasive to you no <laughs> <laughs> Let me say that again. No, um, obviously, you know, there is police accountability in all of this, but certainly, you know, from the perspective of, you know, if, if I'm representing one of the maybe journalists that have now been taken into custody and, and is being possibly charged and my cell phone has now, you know, their cell phone has been seized and the officers involved in this were concealing their identity and there is no way to figure out, you know, what body cam camera do I need to make sure that I am receiving through the course of discovery because I don't even know what named officer may or may not have been involved and I can't necessarily rely on just what I might be receiving um, there could be, if there's multiple officers involved, there could be some body cam footage that is, you know, capturing parts of the event that are certainly important to um, the allegations that my client might be charged with. So I think that certainly it's important to ensure that, you know, there is police accountability and that if officers involved in arrests are making sure that their identities are not concealed. And I think that is consistent with what the law provides as well. Um, John, let me ask you this. Is there a policy and the state police for one of these two eventualities. One, is there something written down in the police, say police manual about when, if ever, they're allowed to conceal their name tag? And secondly, is there some policy written down from the for the state police as to when they can grab a cell phone or is it barred totally? 
Well, I guess I'll take the first one. Yeah, I mean, these circumstances, <laughs> given this fact pattern, yeah, there's no, there's no scenario where seizing the cell phone without more is proper. Um, certainly not here. Uh, as far as the name tags uh, in New York State right now, there's been a push, uh, certainly since 2020, uh, in some circumstances to make it a misdemeanor for law enforcement officers to cover their name tag or generally to ban it. Um, it hasn't passed yet, as, as far as I know. Uh, but as far as state police in general, no, we don't, we don't cover up our name tags. Um, it's part of the uniform and it, it, it's not something that, uh, you know, would, would certainly be allowed if they did, you know, their, their administrative, uh, you know, uh, uh, ways about fixing the problem. So even if it turns out that people are photographing their name tag and then going online, finding where they live and making trouble, it's still state police policy not to cover it. Yeah, I mean, that happens all the time now, certainly with, you know, cell phones out in the public. I mean, that's it's unfortunately, that's the world we live in. And, and to the DA's point, you know, that is certainly the the reason why in some circumstances law enforcement have done it right nobody wants nobody wants anybody showing up at anybody's house um but it's certainly not their own in terms you know you have family members and and obviously with internet and doxing and the ability to quickly get a hold of you know so the reasoning there uh it, it is just like the da said uh you know would be the you know would be the justification for them to do it but obviously as far as i'm concerned and you know, within state police we don't allow that to happen as far as in the training manual and the training sessions, are the police um, trained to not take cell phones or you're just silent on it and there's an inference that they shouldn't do it? The law was passed recently, uh, I think maybe last year or the year before, with respect to the ability for any member of the public to have their cell phone out. And just like the inspector talked about earlier, the only circumstances when it's any law enforcement officer should be taking a cell phone in any circumstance is if they're obstructing, right? If they're getting in the way of an arrest or getting in the way of you know public safety or putting other people in danger, that's the only scenario where that would be that would. They're be using it for some criminal purpose. Correct, and right, and you know, if someone's just using the cell phone to video or you know make a call, and, and there's no circumstance there, you know, short of. You know, obstructing or again committing some other violation, then it would be appropriate to take that cell phone. All right, though it happens uh, across the country, not necessarily in New York. Not by New York State members. Right. Okay. Uh, so, continuing on the scenario here, uh, we have uh, attorney. Uh, I'm sorry, reporter Scoop, who publishes a story. Uh, about uh, the uh, defendant's lavish lifestyle to Caribbean retreat, uh, seemingly financed by these illicitly obtained funds. Um, and this includes surveillance photos. I wonder who might have taken those. So this story appears, which prompts the U.S. attorney to file a motion asking the court to convene a contempt hearing to ascertain who had violated the gag order. And reporter Scoop is subpoenaed as the as the key witness. Uh, so before we go to the uh, counsel for the journalists here, let's just ask our federal prosecutor uh, the circumstances under which you might be able to subpoena a reporter to find out such matters. 
They are extraordinarily limited if existed at all. And I wouldn't do this either. Um, I, I, we have had occasions um, at the Southern District uh, where there have been leaks by um, what we imagine to have been law enforcement because who else has the particular information um, to members of the press and they've been concerning. They're particularly concerning, for example, in cases where they would tend to violate grand jury secrecy. Um, in federal criminal law, there is this thing called Rule 6E that keeps um, materials um, that are being submitted actively to the grand jury um, a secret from the rest of us. It allows those investigations to happen. It does so while protecting the reputations of people on the outside. It has a number of important functions. Um, and there have been times where grand jury information seemingly uh, was leaked out to the public. Um, our answer to that um, tends not to be uh, to get a court involved at all, um, but rather to do the thing that federal law enforcement ought to be pretty good at at baseline, which is investigate on its own outside the realm of some sort of gag order and do so from the law enforcement end um, and ferret out to the extent possible um, from the law enforcement end uh, who did this. Um, to do so the other way, um, to start subpoenaing uh, reporters without having exhausted other possibilities uh, creates um, the very likely possibility um, of a debacle of constitutional uh, dimension um, and the sort of thing that would get that very table, that table justifiably very loud um, and is not and, and the sort of thing where were it to translate into any sort of legal action uh, be the sort of thing that would likely turn into a rebuke judicial um, or otherwise um, for my office, which we don't want. Um, so I, there, there is of course the possibility that your investigation of uh, who was behind the leak might not be as effective if you're not able to get at the reporters. Um, to but, which the answer is too bad. There are other concerns here. Wouldn't there be some suspicion about the US Attorney's investigation of the leak if the material in the story includes surveillance video that presumably was in the custody of the US Attorney? Uh, so there might be some suspicion if you're investigating this that you're probing your colleagues. There might be. I think that the only thing that we could do uh, were this to find its way into a public forum or were somebody to make a public statement is to state emphatically that that sort of leak is unacceptable, um, that we are looking into it using all permissible means, um, and that the people who are involved face any number um, of fates ranging from disciplinary action uh, to something stronger. Um, a couple of people on this side of this are going to be interested in this. Uh, uh, we'll get to the judge in just a moment because there's <laughs> he's going to be interested, even though we know Judge D'Agostino wouldn't have signed this, uh, uh, this gag order in the first place. Let's assume that someone else did and maybe you're uh, reviewing it. Maybe, maybe it's... Uh, 
a judge below. But let me just hear from Roy Gutterman first about this. Is that um, does so? Does the reporter have uh, a privilege that will provide a basis for the subpoena to be quashed? And if so, what's the what's the source of that privilege? Well, I'd like to make a lot of noise on this. Actually, uh, I can't get to the courthouse fast enough with my motion to quash. And uh, again, we're in a federal jurisdiction, so we're going to be somewhat limited with our rights. If this was in a state court, we'd march in with our our, our New York Shield law and get this thrown out uh, probably before the before the stamp was even uh, dried on it. I would make the argument that yes, we do have a privilege here. Uh, maybe not a total privilege under the First Amendment, uh, but a right under the First Amendment to conduct news gathering and, and do our job. Uh, I would also point out that I would say under the facts of this uh, scenario, the Department of Justice appears to be violating its own internal rules on subpoenaing reporters. They can't just go willy-nilly to the reporters because they want to find out who the source of a leak is. So uh, I, would, I would point to that as well. And I would point to our, our only precedent on this from the Supreme Court, Brandsburg v. Hayes from uh, 72, 1972, which does set out some standards for what the government's going to have to prove to get a reporter to, uh, to testify or to reveal uh, confidential information. And uh, to quote or to paraphrase uh, Justice Powell, the concurring opinion, and Justice Stewart in his dissent, uh, the government is not free to annex the press to become its investigative arm. Uh, I would think that the Department of Justice and the U.S. Attorney's Office would have uh, more than ample resources to find out who the leak was without knocking on our reporters' doors and therefore uh, invading our, our right to use confidential sources or any sources for that matter. Judge, are you... Good with that. Are you, if you want to find out, however, who violated this court order, uh, and the quickest and surest way to do that is to compel the reporter to tell you who gave her this surveillance video and all this information. <laughs> of course, every case is different, but um, the case law is uh, pretty well settled in this area. And in I'll just speak for myself and not specifically on these facts necessarily, but say that um, the government would have a lot of explaining to do to me before I would haul a reporter in and require that the reporter give a source. If it, if it were an exigent matter, if, if somebody's safety, you know, was at risk or something like that, maybe, but uh, with the might of the government as it is, I would think that we would not have to get to that rather extraordinary um, action and that they, they could do their own investigation. And of course, in a case like this, where the person is um, a public figure, uh, almost anything goes with what you're going to uh, print about a public figure unless it can be demonstrated that you have actual malice. So uh, speaking for myself, uh, it would it would take a lot in order for me to require uh, by order and a reporter to come in and to disclose a source. I'm not saying it could never happen, but in the theoretical world, it would take a lot. Uh, I'm, I'm a little bit troubled by 
the nature of the alleged violation of the gag order, because under the hypothetical, the U.S. attorney is making a motion to uh, for a hearing as to who violated the gag order, and the violation seems to be that Scoop is laying out the details of the prosecution's case and a retreat showing a bunch of pictures. How can I violate, I'll ask the U.S. attorney, by the reporter laying out the details of the prosecution's case? Is that a basis to hold a contempt hearing for violating the gag order? Or is it, I mean, is it, am I reading this right? Again, Mike, you can, you can speak out also. I'm just puzzled by whether this could ever be the basis for violating a court order with the reporter I, lays out the prosecution's case. How in the world could that be a violation well, of anything? I, I'll, I'll offer something. There is a reason why at virtually every press conference I've attended or been a part of while at the U.S. Attorney's Office, the um, U.S. Attorney himself and anyone speaking on behalf of the government have been extraordinarily cautious to limit themselves to the four corners of the instrument that's being introduced, that is to say the complaint or the indictment. Why? Well, one reason is that if you lay out the government's case, even though it will presumptively become public later on, and this assumes a world, by the way, where we're not even talking about a gag order, right? We're just talking about what's inherently potentially problematic about this. Um, you could lay out that evidence in a way that is selective and in a way that tends to influence uh, or jaundice the pool of prospective jurors um, against the uh, defendant in a way that is somewhat skewed. You're not going to present the entirety of a case um, in a press conference or in remarks or through whatever leak with, you know, may have happened here. Um, and doing so in a way that would tend to leave people thinking, oh, well, this guy's guilty. Um, outside of a forum where there are checks and balances in play, um, not to mention evidentiary rules, um, is the sort of thing that could be seen as undue influence of the prospective, the prospective jury pool. Not to mention, if there is still an active grand jury matter, um, and there are grand jurors who could be swayed by this in advance of considering a superseding instrument, if they're going to add charges later on, this is something that could potentially be harmful there as well. My okay. old boss at the U.S. Attorney's Office got into some trouble just for characterizing these offenses. The U.S. Attorney's Office. Yes, as sure. Bad. But we're talking about the newspapers, whether oh. the press can write selectively. Mark, you look a little bit uncomfortable. I cannot imagine why you'd be uncomfortable with the idea that the press should be shaped as to how and what they emphasize in an article. Right. It's not our responsibility to give the prosecution the opportunity to present his case in full. And, and uh, it's just our responsibility to present the news as we see fit. And, um, you know, the consequences of that, while we're, we'll be aware of them, um, I don't think that that that's a function of our our, uh, our existence is to do that. Oh, but but potential jurors read what you write and it's inflammatory and potentially not But whose responsibility is it to protect the case from jurors um, learning this information or acting upon it? Isn't that upon the courts to 
to deal with them? Well, we can't unring a bell, though. That's the problem. And, you know, when I say, have you read anything about this case? And, and if they really want to be on that jury, no, 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 no. I haven't read anything about it, but. But then you can start. Then I think that sort of opens the door to other restrictions on the press that, um, you know, it's a slippery slope from saying, OK, something you wrote might influence a jury. You implied that it's guilty or you interviewed somebody, a witness who or somebody who thinks that the person is guilty. Um, are you going to go after each kind of quote that they get, each kind of bit of information that they get from other sources um, in order to protect the integrity of the jury system? How far do you go? And I think that opens the door when, when you start uh, doing that. No, I, I understand what you're saying, but I, I responded because you 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 said, well, we can do whatever we want. We want, right? But it, it, I'm just pointing out that it can have significant ramifications for someone to have a fair trial down the line. I'm not I'm not hunting out reporters pre-trial, you know, to put you in jail or anything. I'm just saying that more accurate you are and the less. Uh, speculation, you know, the better in terms of what I have to do, which is try to find 12 people who can decide the case fairly and impartially. But then, but, but that's not our issue. That's not it. our problem. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's yours. Let me ask Professor Gutterman. Mostly it would be nice if you could find jurors who had read anything in the press. <laughs> I'll ask Professor Gutterman, putting aside the question of whether you're in a federal court that does not have a shield law or in a state court that does, Putting that question aside, are you uncomfortable at all with the notion of subpoenaing a reporter based not on privilege, but on self-incrimination? Just take her and throw her in the witness stand. Uh, isn't there a Fifth Amendment issue here? Couldn't she go to jail if she doesn't want to answer? I mean, that's the ultimate question with uh, and when, when a reporter refuses to answer a question or refuses to comply with a subpoena. Uh, I don't think that I mean, I, I've seen arguments to be made for the Fifth Amendment, self-incrimination argument. I don't think it's really built up too much steam with media or reporters. Um, so that would be a tough one. And that, and, and again, what do we what do we we can't make an inference from or from invoking the Fifth? But I it, I don't think it would look good for a reporter when there are stronger arguments to be made. Um, again, we don't. There, there are certain gaps here in the facts. We don't know what the sources were for the story. Uh, you know, many reporters will do a pretrial story where they don't even talk. They don't get any real comments on the record from anybody involved in the litigation. So they'll reconstruct it talking to a bunch of outside lawyers or or professors. Uh, should reporters be held in contempt of court because they talk to a bunch of law professors in advance of uh, a story? I think that would be a, a hugely problematic uh, standard to establish. Uh, in any kind of uh, case. Um, let's suppose that we're not asking the reporter to reveal sources, but we just, the, the, the report is being subpoenaed and is, asked, is being asked about violating, about herself violating a gag order, not talking about uh, sources. Is, doesn't that raise a Fifth Amendment question? But why would you need to ask the reporter if they violated the, the, the gag order when the implication is that the reporter already violated the gag order? Can go to jail. Correct. Um, it's in that, contempt, right? It would be contempt if you don't answer a question. Correct. Yeah. Um, and I think that would be uh, that would be a 
an argument to, to stick through and hope you can win that on appeal after you get out of jail in 80 days or however, however long you're going to be in jail. It's also just ineffective because for most reporters, or at least the best reporters, going to jail is a badge of honor. I protected my story and my sources. I'm going. Cold and uncomfortable. Based upon the scenario here, though, how the, the reporter can't follow the gag order. The, the, the gag order just says that the attorneys, the parties, are prohibited from disseminating information to the media et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't say anything about the media not, not, not saying anything here in the, in the, in the current scenario. I think in the scenario, you're right. The, it's not the reporters who are gagged. It's the, right. uh, yeah. So, so that, I mean, in, in this, in this hypothetical here, right. The, 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 the presumption is that either the defense attorney or the prosecutor violated the gag order by leaking the, the only way that the, the details of the prosecution case, the only way that could get out is from the defense attorney who has it on discovery or the prosecutor himself. And so Gruff here is making a motion. Either he's a great actor or he's making it because he believes that the defense attorney violated the gag order. So again, I, I don't I don't think it's right here what he did, but that, I mean, that that's the premise here of, of what he did. The premise here is that Ruff believes that the defense attorney violated the gag order. And I agree with my colleague here that the better way to do that, find that out, um, is to make sure that it was the defense attorney and not anyone from my shop by doing an internal investigation. But the defense counsel for the defense, you're going to be interested in finding out who violated this gag order because actually it's detrimental to your clients this information that's out there showing her living this lavish lifestyle, right? So you would probably be joining in the effort to find out who leaked. My client is also the one, right, in this hypothetical that was tweeting. Uh -huh. saying, okay. So I guess my, <laughs> to start off, I hope I never have a client like this ever. <laughs> and I've never had a client like this ever. Because if we are in a situation that the, the subject of the gag order is because of the defendant themselves, then I think the first question as counsel is how did we get here? Because when you're advising your client in private about, you know, your rep in the course of your representation of this case, the first thing you are doing is making sure that your client is silenced in all communication. And if you have a client that has gone rogue and is on Twitter and is on social media and is being very inflammatory about the facts of their case, um, you have a problem, right? Um, so, but given this is the context of our hypothetical and we are at this place where we have a rogue client and they are subject to the gag order, um, certainly if now the question is someone leaking um, you know, facts about the gag order being violated, I would be all the more concerned that the court is not going to reflect poorly on my client because of the prior inflammatory statements. Just curious, Judge, do you imagine there could be any, I, being a non-lawyer, I, I should know the answer to this question, could there be penalty imposed upon defense counsel if the defendant is... In, is doing inflammatory work, uh, violating a gag order, for example. Does the does defense counsel have 
in effect, a responsibility to keep her client gagged? Or is there recognition that that's rather impossible? It's a pretty impossible task because I really should not be invading attorney-client privilege um, and saying to a defense attorney, I need to know what your, did your client call the Times Union and tell them that? Because it seems to me that he, he or she is the source of it. That's be very difficult. Mm -hmm. I can, I really should not be invading that, that attorney-client privilege. And with respect to the potential Fifth Amendment issue for the reporter, if the reporter, again, outside the hypothetical, perhaps illegally enters a chat room, for example, or, or accesses electronic information in order to get information about uh, us, our, our business person. If, that re if the source of the information might have been, in fact, a reporter's uh, extra legal activity, do you have any way to defend against that, presuming the reporter might have confessed to you, well, yeah, actually, I did go into that uh, website. I wrote my law review note on this topic. Mm -hmm. um, it, I, the news gathering rights of a reporter don't, uh, unfortunately, exceed the rights of anybody else to gather news or, uh, or gain information. And uh, I would certainly counsel a client or a media uh, entity to not engage in illegal activity like computer hacking or uh any sort of actual trespass i believe it would be a tough argument to make to defend some sort of actual hacking um or any illegal activity like that but if a source had engaged in that sort of behavior and then given that uh, material to the reporter that would be a perfectly legitimate use under several cases that have been argued at the supreme court so i, I guess it all depends on who's breaking the law Hopefully it will not be my reporter, but uh, I'm not going to go as far as to uh, ask the reporter right now if that's something that they've done. In terms of breaking the law, I'm glad you used that phrase, <clears throat> breaking the law, because when we think about breaking the law, we appreciate that the attorney-client privilege does not contemplate its existence in the face of law breaking. So let me ask you this. Let's suppose, uh, Natalie, that you cautioned your client uh, Tusk said, look, there's a there's a court order out there for a gag. Uh, whether you're allowed to say something, you're innocent. Uh, this is an unfair trial. Well, I'm not talking about that, but don't you dare. Are you listening? Don't you dare single out a witness and intimidate that witness. And he says to you, I'll do whatever I want. He then gets charged with contempt for violating a court order for she, rather, uh, Tusk, uh, is looking at contempt for violating a court order for knowingly threatening and intimidating a witness. You now get called before the grand jury and are asked whether you had a conversation in which you told Tusk not to do that. Where do you stand on that? Well, first of all, we have a conflict, right? But um, my- Conflict, what do you mean? We have a conflict because if, if I'm being forced to be a witness against my client, right. that is obviously an inherent conflict. Right. Um, I would first though, try to argue to the court why I couldn't be compelled to testify against my client because we do enjoy the benefit of attorney-client you know, confidence, confidentiality. Um, I think in a situation in which there was a public 
some public acknowledgement, not through the course of my communications with my client, but if I was present during a court order in which it is now being called upon as a new subsequent charge, there could potentially be situations in which the court would require me to get out and the court would find that there is a conflict and they would have to appoint new counsel. Whether I continue to potentially be a, a witness against my own client, I think is a separate argument that obviously we would seek to preserve and make sure that I could never be a witness against my client because that's just not possible. Um, what do you mean it's not possible? Isn't it happening today all over the country? I mean, I think it's a very fact specific situation. It's a, it's a very, very, very potent attorney client issue. And so I think that there would have to be clear circumstances in which the attorney would be a witness against their own potential client. And it wouldn't encompass only communications during their own attorney client. It, it's happening today only when the attorney is a defendant now. I mean, that, that, that's where you're seeing it today. I mean, you're seeing it today. And I mean, outside of this, I mean, you know, in the real world, you're seeing it when the attorney themselves now uh, is has become a, a defendant, has charged against them. And then now they are turning on their client. Good point. Now, I may, I may have been mistaken. It's happening all over the country. But uh, let me ask you, Professor, aren't there instances in which lawyers are being called before grand, grand juries and uh, being ordered to testify on the basis that the attorney-client privilege does not work for criminal conversation. Yeah, I mean, this this aspect of uh, professional ethics and, and and legal law, a little outside my 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 uh, area of expertise, but I read what what's been going on in at least three or four jurisdictions around the country, and I do remember from uh, my professional responsibility class that lawyers can't be engaged in breaking the law. Uh, even with their clients. So you know, the, the crime and fraud exception, I think, is playing out or has played out in a number of cases that we've seen in relatively real time. Interesting point. So you, if you counsel Tusk, don't you dare do that. You're not breaking the law. It's not a criminal conversation, you would say. But if you said, uh, go ahead and do it, now you're a target. Now you're a defendant, right? Arguably, yes. I mean, Arguably. if I'm advising my client so. about the repercussions of their conduct and that they should not do that because their conduct could potentially, you know, get them held in contempt, then that is certainly covered by the attorney-client um, privilege. But if I'm saying go out there, do some criminal thing, and I'm got you covered and encourage criminal conduct, then I think that's a different story and that's a different analysis. Right. You can be a witness, also a defendant. Mm -hmm. Okay. Is that right? Am I correct on that? I'd agree with you, Your Honor. Yeah. Real life. Uh, so let's another item that uh, in this hypothetical potentially matches real life it has to do with uh, audio, video, visual coverage of the court, uh, which in this uh, scenario, uh, attorney watch over here uh, is trying to get uh, television coverage, but. Uh, of course, in, in federal courts, the current standard is that uh, federal court rules do not allow TV coverage and would interfere with the administration of justice. But uh, defense counsel here is joining with the media. And so I guess the question, as a First Amendment expert, Professor Gutterman, uh, do you think that there is, in fact, a 
a First Amendment argument you could make uh, on a right to audiovisual coverage of a criminal trial like this? I will certainly make the argument. I don't know if I'll be convincing enough to uh, a federal court, uh, because if there's one thing that federal courts tend to agree on from uh, the, the trial level all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court is that they don't want cameras in the courtroom or anything that uh, could be used to record. On the other hand, I would say there's no greater way to involve the public or educate the public about what goes on in the judicial system than having uh, having audio and video, at the very least audio. We've seen the Supreme Court move on uh, same day, live audio. Uh, there have been some federal jurisdictions, uh, some trial courts that have had pilot projects on uh, cameras in the courtroom, but those were most those were civil cases. So, you know, the administration of justice does require public understanding, and I would say there's no greater way to educate the public than having cameras right there. Well, and of course, the constitutional right to uh, public trial. Uh, citizens who might want to attend the trial and can't fit into a small courtroom are excluded, and uh, and moreover citizens would be forced to rely upon uh, spin doctors and um, the masters of mendacity at Fox News uh, to tell us what's going on in these trials. Uh, so, uh, Judge, can you imagine a scenario under which you could say, you know, in my courtroom, you know, there's state precedent for this when uh, Judge Joe Teresi in Albany County allowed uh, audiovisual coverage before the state law formally uh, embraced it, right? Uh, could you see a scenario in which you would allow the coverage notwithstanding uh, guiding precedent, I guess, from federal courts? Well, with the guiding precedent being the way it is, probably not. If I even contemplated it, I'm quite sure that I would address it. Like if I knew I was going to have a very... Uh, you know, high public interest trial, if I even gave it a smidgen of thought in advance, I would talk to Washington, I would talk to the Second Circuit, but um, I'm pretty much bound to follow the, the prevailing uh, rules at the present time. But I will tell you, it's interesting because it has come up um, since COVID, since we did do some proceedings remotely. I have had reporters and other people uh, email my office and say, I can't be at that sentencing. Uh, will you do it by teams so that I can attend it by teams? And I know the answer will not be uh, all that well received, but the answer is my courtroom is open. It's open to the public. Uh, you Come on down. And I, I will tell you that I do have concerns about people that I don't know having even um, the remote feed, because I don't know if they are recording it. I don't know if they mean harm to anyone. Well, I wouldn't know that even if they were in the courtroom, except that perhaps my court officers could perceive a, a problem. So, you know, on a personal level, I am very, I, I think that civics wise, it would help people if they could see our trials. I think it would make people respect the judicial system more than they do. But I grew up in the um, O.J. Simpson trial era, and I saw a lot of things that bothered me during that trial. 
And I wasn't a judge then. And so I can say that I saw a lot of things that didn't make me proud uh, about the way some of that trial was being conducted. But, you know, personally, and I can't I can't make rulings on personal basis. I think that it would be very good for our young people, our citizens to see a trial. And uh, right now in the federal system, it's not it's not possible. Isn't that reaction, though? part of the edge of the the sort of educational value like the oj trial you see what happened and you form an opinion on it and some of it's not the sort of thing that warms the cockles of one's justice loving heart but you know you know that this is the way that things work in state court that judges are fallible that trials sometimes get out of control and run half a year longer than they should um that you know, judges sometimes get rough, run roughshod over and that sometimes issues. I mean, that that's part of the civics education, right? Not just the sort of schoolhouse rock style, three branches of government sort of thing, but more the sometimes it goes wrong. Here are some of the wrinkles and get to watch them happen in real time. I mean, I'm on the record. If you watch my Senate hearing, my confirmation hearing, Senator Grassley uh, called me on something that I had said um, 20 years before the, my hearing, where I did express concerns about cameras in the courtroom when they were first being used. I expressed concerns about the jurors, you know, were their faces, faces going to be flashed, but I changed my, my mind over the years. And I'm on the record at my hearing saying that I support cameras in the courtroom. So that's not news. I answered the Senator's question directly. I think it would really benefit society to see what we do. Of course, we would want safeguards for our jurors. We would not want their you know, faces flashed from one end of the trial to the other, but you, you don't have an argument with me on that. But you know, right now in the federal system, if I were to contemplate it, um, I would have to really start planning in advance. And I would probably be, I, I'm just estimating that I would put in a request and that request would be denied. That's what is I'm it, thinking. I don't know the answer to this question. I'm not sure that others do, but you you more likely would. Is it something written down now in the federal system as a flat out bar for which you have no discretion ever to override to bring in a camera? I think, you know what? Um, since I've been judge, um, I've been advised in, you know, written papers that I've received that cameras are not used in the courtroom. Could a district judge try to buck that and attempt right. to get permission? Probably. But I, again, I'm not optimistic that that would be granted. You get Yeah. Uh, it's flat out bar. Interesting. Who's going to, let's say she makes a ruling allowing it. Who's going to appeal it if uh, the defendant wants it 
and the U.S. attorney is indifferent. Oh, he's opposing it. Oh, my. Yeah, sure. What if Smith and Company uh, were in favor of it or were neutral? Who would appeal it? How would it ever get to somebody who can shoot it down? Well, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I think it's unlikely the judge will go this way, although I think if you go back and look at the policy considerations that were identified in Richmond newspapers in 1980, which was the first case in which the U.S. Supreme Court identified a constitutional right of press and public access to trial proceedings, all of them apply wholesale uh, in favor of recognizing a right of live audiovisual coverage. Um, and here in particular, given the uh, unique singular national importance of this prosecution, I think it would be of tremendous educational value to the public to be able to see what is going to take place in this courtroom rather than to have to rely on secondhand uh, mediated accounts and spin doctors uh, giving their takes. So um, my, my view really is there is a First Amendment right uh, to audiovisual coverage of proceedings in both state and federal courts. That is a minority view. Of Thank you. There is, of course, in this internet-abled age, another route, not an alternative necessarily, but something that I think ought to happen, no matter how that motion is resolved, which is transcripts should be available for free and full ones. We live in an internet, uh, you know, sort of equipped era. Um, and I think that at least, you know, you're, you're not everything has to come in five minute news stories. If people want to do deep dives, they ought to be able to. Um, and and it, it bothers me a great deal that um, very often for matters of significant importance that get carried out in trial courts, um, the real obstacle is uh, the price per page. Hmm. All right, continuing the scenario, we're getting to a, a couple of important issues that we wanna be sure we have enough time to talk about. In the scenario, as this trial gets ready to go forward, jury selection gets underway and the prosecution moves, the government moves to close this to the press and the public, seal the questionnaires that uh, prospective jurors fill out, uh, which seek to get at any uh, potential conflicts of interest or biases. And three, uh, impanel an anonymous jury so that even at the conclusion of the trial, we don't know the names of uh, who was on the jury. The argument, of course, is that, uh, well, let's, let's leave the argument actually to uh, the lawyers. Uh, let's say that uh, we have uh, uh, the, the uh, prosecutors uh, moving for closing this down, both for dear and uh, for an anonymous jury, and we'll have uh, attorneys uh, for the defendant and uh, for the media uh, in opposition. So let me hear first from the prosecution. You want to close the courtroom? <laughs> I actually don't, but let's assume for the moment I did. Um, there, there is a, I should note by the way, and I think the professor mentioned this before, um, for virtually any sensitive media issue, there is an office within the Department of Justice at Maine Justice um, that would make these types of decisions uh, for you, whether you could get a subpoena cleared um, to go after a reporter in certain circumstances and whether you can get a court closure um, is one of those things that would have to be run through DC. 
um, including for something like Far Gear. Um, How far up, by the way, do you think that kind of a decision goes? Um, I think that it is something that would, as a technical matter, probably be signed by the Deputy Attorney General. Um, as a practical matter, there are too many things daily that need to be signed by the Deputy Attorney General, so as to suggest that he or she poured over, you know, each and every one of them. Um, someone lower than that is probably doing the bulk of the work, but it's their signature. Um, so there, there's a there's a specific framework with anonymous jurors, uh, juries, but it typically has to do with the possibility of physical harm more than harassment. Um, and when we're talking about harm, we're usually talking about like some concrete sense, for example, in 80s old style organized crime cases um, that a juror's life may actually be in danger. I doubt that even anything like this in the aftermath of the events outlined in page two would necessarily arise to that level. And of course, um, if you do get this wrong, and the trial is still pronounced constitutionally infirm, um, it would be a heck of a reason for a reversal. So this is the sort of thing that I actually would probably avoid if, if possible. Uh, how about our District Attorney Flynn? Are you? Uh... Ditto. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. Yeah, no, I, I would avoid this. Um, I, obviously, I, I don't have anyone to answer to above me. I, I, I can decide it for myself. Um, uh, you know, I don't have any chain of command. <laughs> I am the chain of command. Um, and but uh, the uh, yeah, I, I agree with my colleague here. I, I, I would not do this. Um, you know, there has to be some, you know, really valid reason for this as far as you know protecting, you know, the the life of of, of a juror. Um, well, what about being able to get juries in the future? If these jurors are scared to death, you, they see the threats on social media. Uh, they see, uh, in fact, of course, witnesses are intimidated by uh, Tusk in this case. Uh, and, and isn't there a sense that you would have a hell of a time getting juries in the future if people know that their names are going to be out there uh, and uh, potentially then their addresses posted on social media? Yes, uh, I, I, agree, I agree with that. There, there's, a, there's a problem with that. Um, I, I, would, I would let it play out a little bit though, perhaps, um, and, and, and see if in fact that did arise in the future um, and then address it then. Uh, but you know, I, 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 I let it play out and I, I wouldn't jump to that conclusion right away. So you wouldn't close Vardir, but the names of the let me just ask the reporters here. Is there a reason that you want to know the names of the jurors in a case like this other than to, well, what is the reason? Is there a reason? Mostly so you can get them later. We'll interview you. Oh, but doesn't the jury speak through its verdict? Why do you want to interview them? Because you want to know how the decision was made, who the holdouts were, why they held out. You want detail on a case of this uh, public interest and uh, detail. I wanted to hear from each, as many jurors who will speak. The Code uh, of Ethics of the Society of Professional Journalists, Part 4, says minimize harm. Consistent with your truth-telling responsibilities, your job is also to minimize the harm that might come to as a result of truth-telling. So aren't you actually putting people in the line of harm if you're publicizing their names of these jurors? Uh, in talking to them, you would ask, or they would tell you, I don't want you to use my name, and you would say why, and then you could judge. So it is possible 
but you make a presumption that speaking to a reporter puts you in harm. I'm not so sure that's true. Also, you want to give the reporters the opportunity to question the jurors, and then the newspaper, you know, hopefully will be responsible enough to, you know, decide whether that puts them in harm by publishing their names or not. Um, there's also, you know, with social media and everything else, there's a lot of ways that the names would get out anyway. So besides the, the journalists interviewing them, so. Um, hmm. For example, Facebook, they talk about it on Facebook and you go and find it there. Mm -hmm. And as defense counsel, are you, do you have an interest in whether the, whether Fadir is open, whether your jury is anonymous, or do you, do you want your client to know who the jurors are and everybody else? So I think the question, what we often refer to in court as open Fadir is the opportunity for both counsel to be able to engage with the jurors in a way, in a meaningful way to learn and figure out where they're coming from, what their biases are, and all of their, you know, potential problems for sitting on this case. That process is oftentimes done without, you know, behind closed doors. And that is a, a process that I think ensures the ability for counsel, both prosecution and defense, to be able to engage closely on some of these questions. So, I, you know, I think from a defense counsel perspective, the first part of the hypothetical where you're, you know, you're talking about the government moving to close the voir dire to the press, that is certainly something that I think both parties tend to agree on in these situations. Um, but as far as, you know, the anonymous jury, I mean, counsel themselves will often, they will get the full names of the jurors. And it is important for counsel and the parties involved to know who the potential jurors are. Um, but you know, at the end of the case, when the when the verdict has been returned and the court is releasing the jury, it is certainly, you know, the, the jurors themselves are advised and cautioned and um, given the ability to do typically what they feel they're comfortable with, with engaging with counsel and the media. And it's really up to them whether they want to engage and talk to the media, whether they want to talk to the prosecutors, whether they want to talk to defense counsel and share their experience. And I think that is something that is always should be left to the jurors themselves. We'll come to that in just a second. By the way, it's time for me to just say to the CLE uh, applicants and to the journalism students, the code word number two uh, is integrity. Code word number two is integrity. And I can now turn off the timer in my pocket. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, stop. Uh, and uh, and come back to this issue of the what what the you know the notion though that the public in this case uh, that the followers bombarding the jurors on social media could be in effect a thirteenth juror. Uh, you could have uh, an awful lot of uh, the, the uh, in effect, uh, pushing jurors on social media by pressuring them to acquit. Uh, if you're, uh, and this is before there is uh, anything going on in the court that might uh, uh, affect the uh, actual outcome of the case. Uh, there's a push by these people to uh, intimidate the jurors. Um, so this is not something that prosecutors can do anything about 
because of the principle of uh, wishing to have this information in the open, you're saying. This is, uh, you need to have these this anyway. I, I, I will note, I assumed a voir dire process conducted by the court, which is typically my experience in federal court, um, where, you know, it's part of the actual on the record proceedings. Um, of course, it's the case often that you've got, you know, particularly, I think, in like, certainly the last time I was a civil juror, um, you know, you've got like a closed off the record proceeding and it's fine to proceed with that if that's the way your forum goes. We're almost, um, almost ready to... As far as, as, far as intimidation uh, goes, though, I mean, you're, the, the principal recourse that we have is the ability to prosecute individual instances of intimidation. Um, if there is some sort of an effort or plot to um, obstruct justice by intimidating witnesses or jurors, um, you know, as, as, as Apple would have said some times ago, there's an app for that. There's a crime for that. And your, your, your principal recourse is to actually investigate those offenses and prosecute them when they rise to the level um, of something that can be prosecuted. There, there, you'll find nary a system that doesn't have that kind of criminal violation built in. Um, and the action, you know, I think my colleague here had said to sort of wait to see how it develops. That's why, because there may be something prosecutable there. And that too is an effective way of letting jurors know that they can't be intimidated. Well, we come now to uh, the fascinating culmination of this uh, event, and that is an application uh, by the press that the uh, jurors in the case be instructed that they don't have to talk to the press, but that they're free to talk to the press if they want to. They asked that of the judge, and the judge said, I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not granting that. I'm not going to tell the jurors that they're free to talk to the press. As a matter of fact, I'm going to tell them that they may not talk to the press, even if they want to. So uh, how does that, how would that uh, stand with the folks here? I'm not sure that, I mean, obviously the press would resent that. So we know that and it's clear and we know exactly we could, we could, we could speak in your shoes. So this is just the worst thing imaginable because you want to inquire into what happened in the jury room, if bad stuff went on in the jury room. But let me ask the DA, where do you stand on uh, the uh, prosecutors? Where do you stand on inquiries of jurors after the case is over and there's a guilty verdict? Well, I mean, to me, it doesn't matter guilty or not guilty. I mean, personally, I mean, I, I, I don't, I've always, um, I've never seen this scenario right here in my life. Um, you know, the, 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 every judge, that I, you know, state judge that I've encountered always says to the jury, it's up to you. What and so I, I would be, I, I would be against this in all regards. I mean, I'm not sure this is even legal, quite frankly. But you guys may know better than me. I, I mean, to me, this is illegal on the face of it. But I, I'm not a scholar in that regard. Well, yes, the judge. Would you ever? Are there ever any circumstances in which you would ever, under any conceivable hy hypothetical fact? hypothetical pattern tell the jurors that they're not allowed to uh, talk to the press 
I cannot conceive of a scenario where I would do that. It seems to be a violation of their free speech rights, number one. Um, like many other judges, uh, I will say to jurors, the attorneys, I usually say attorneys. Um, I don't I don't usually include the press in there, but I just say the attorneys may want to speak to you. If you if you would like to speak to them, you may. Uh, most of our my jurors like run out of the courthouse as soon as they render their verdict. They don't seem to want to talk to anyone, uh, especially in the criminal cases. And I just I, I wasn't asked, but I, I want to say that jurors just to go back for a minute, they many jurors do feel very uncomfortable about being on criminal jury panels to the point where I've received letters um, why did you let that lawyer call me Mrs. Smith? I wanted to be called just juror number three. Um, why are my names being used in front of that defendant? Three days into a criminal trial, a juror asked to speak to me and she came in and asked me if the defendant and his lawyer knew her address. Uh, I thank goodness, had an alternate. I brought the lawyers in. I told them what the, she was clearly fearing for her safety if she rendered a guilty verdict. So we excused her. We had an alternate. So I just want to say that uh, jurors, um, you know, it's rare to have an anonymous jury, but please know that everyday jurors in criminal cases are thinking about their safety. But as far as um, telling jurors that they could never speak to the press or for a five-year period. I just think that, do you, has that happened? Is that why? Uh... Yes, it has happened. Mike, can you tell us about that? It's not a coincidence that this, uh, this particular feature is there because there have been judges who have put in a, a, a prohibition uh, jurors speaking out. Is it, question Mike, is it, is it a contempt? if the jury is violated, and how do you enforce it? Yeah, well, enforceability is a really difficult question, Judge Rosenblatt, but um, folks may not be aware, but in the prosecution of Derek Chauvin, who of course was convicted for the murder of George Floyd uh, in Minneapolis, uh, the judge imposed a six month uh, ban on the ability of jurors to speak with the press, even if they were willing to. And it was motivated out of a concern to preserve tranquility in what was a racially driven community at the time. Uh, I have serious questions about the constitutional propriety of that order, um, compounding what I think is arguably an error in the uh, criminal prosecution of the two accomplices of Chauvin, which was in federal court for reasons I'm not entirely clear of, the judge imposed a 10-year ban on the ability of the press to speak with jurors in that case. Um, so those two cases are now on the books. Um, I think it does a real disservice because one of the very valuable things I, I find about press coverage when they involve juror interviews is invariably they show that jurors take their duties very seriously and they explain their reasoning, what the evidence was that led them to a verdict in a certain case. And usually the end result is to promote the perception of fairness about the operation of the criminal justice system and to legitimize the verdict that the jury reaches. Um, so uh, this area of the law is changing. Um, more broadly, it used to be the case that 
there was a presumption under the First Amendment of press and public access to voir dire, to the identities of jurors, and again, to be able to speak with jurors post-verdict. I see a considerable retrenchment in this area of the law in the last three to four to five years where that presumption has almost been uh, reversed, particularly in high profile cases, because the concern is among trial judges, and I think this is legitimate and I think it's real, that social media is a game changer. And in high profile cases where you have uh, a defendant who has supporters uh, and it's a polarized case in a given community, the fear is on the part of the judiciary that the followers of a defendant or a party are going to, if the jurors are known, exert pressure, uh, dox them, threaten them uh, in a way that is going to cause them to uh, reach a verdict perhaps that they might not otherwise have reached. And that is uh, a real threat and a potential compromise to the legitimacy of the justice system. And, and we're seeing cases. that all the time. You say it happened in two cases? At least two, uh, at least, uh, well, there have been anonymous juries entered with considerable frequency in the in the past three or four years. Um, the federal, the state court prosecution of Trump in the Georgia interference with the elections, that is an anonymous jury. Uh, just yesterday, another judge, state court judge in Georgia, Georgia entered in order in a criminal case involving some rapper who I was not familiar with, but apparently there are real concerns about how social media could potentially influence jury members there. The judge impaneled an impartial uh, jury. And the, the point that's worth mentioning though too, is there have been cases where Jurors have been impaneled and they're not neutral. They concealed certain things that resulted when they became disclosed and known to the public after the fact that ended up resulting in their disqualification or even requiring a new trial. So um, there is value in exposing who's sitting on, on juries and the press has often played a very important role uh, in digging into the background of jurors um, and making that information known, because that too can be a threat to the legitimacy of the operation of the trial. Well, my question is about the jurors, whether they're anonymous or not, are instructed by the judge. You may not speak to the press. Are those? Is that happened? Uh, just in the in the two Floyd. in 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 the two uh, cases that I that I mentioned. That I'm not they, sure if the order was jurors you can't speak or press you can't contact. The jurors. There, there may be some differences uh, depending on how the order is framed, but in the two Minnesota prosecutions arising from the murder of George Floyd, there were significant restrictions imposed on the ability of the press to speak with jurors in a way that, in my judgment, uh, virtually destroyed the news value of whatever interview eventually does take place. Are these both state prosecutions? One state, one federal. Aren't they're both appealable orders? I don't know if the Supreme Court of Minnesota, I would imagine the press would be going up the line to the Supreme Court of Minnesota and to the, uh, was it the Eighth Circuit or? My, my understanding is that the press coalition involved in covering both of those cases made the judgment that uh, given the unique circumstances of, of those prosecutions, as well as the nature of the political and social environment, uh, that there were there was not an appeal taken from either of those orders. All right. 
But I oh. just say one thing. I mean, in order as a judge to have a unanimous, um, a um, anonymous jury, uh, you really have to specifically set forth the reasons why with great particularity. I mean, there one of the issues from a judge's perspective is that the impact that it has on the defendant. Um, if you if you have uh, an anonymous jury, does that get that jury believing before the trial starts um, that that presumption of innocence isn't there? Like, oh my God, we're an anonymous jury. Um, and so that, if, if I were to do that, and I have not done that, uh, I would be questioning the jurors very carefully you know, do you understand that the fact that you've been impaneled as an anonymous jury can in no way affect um, this defendant's presumption of innocence? Because after all, it's different. And you worry about that. Like, oh, my God, it's, it's we're, we're anonymous. This guy must be guilty or this gal must be guilty. So it requires a lot before you do it. I think that's a great point. Judge Garrett, you have to give a pretty sending message to jurors that this is a different case. And the dynamic, goes See about the folks. See about the folks in the audience. Uh, yes, if we have we have about five minutes. Uh, if there are questions from folks in the audience, or actually, uh, if, if those of you online, we may be able to take some. Let's just see if there's anything we need to we can get you here at the very end. Uh, I will bring the okay, microphone the to top. you. Is there anyone who's truly for Anyone in control? No, yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yes, is it really possible to have a juror who is truly neutral? It's, it's very difficult. I was a trial lawyer for 30 years. Um, I would be representing a doctor and a juror would say, well, I hold a doctor responsible for my so mother's death. Okay, thanks for sharing. Do you think that you can be objective and impartial in this case that has nothing to do with your mother? Oh, yes, I can. And this is like just, just, just the way they said it. But I will say that most jurors in my lifetime of trying cases and presiding, they do want to do the right thing. And I have no doubt about it. They really do want to do the right thing, whether or not they can suppress the prejudices that they might have or the everyday life experiences. That's another thing. But if you're a good trial lawyer and you're a good judge, you really can talk to them about the Constitution so that they can hear the Star Spangled Banner in the background and you know the presumption of innocence. I do believe most jurors come to the table wanting to do the right thing. I and the I've power of twelve, I think, really helps. You know, we often get this question about journalists. You bring your own biases to your reporting. Of course, we all have human biases, but there are procedures in place and there are standards expected that help to assure that reporting is fair at legitimate news organizations. And I think the same thing occurs when you get the inside that jury room and when you have the instruction that from the judge that with 12 individuals, that helps to ensure that fairness, uh, fairness eventually becomes the standard. Maybe you see me 
do you have any idea, Judge, how difficult this was? And I will say, I think I do. Uh, I'm telling you, it they are like wet dish rags on the criminal cases when I go in to talk to them and to thank them. Thank you. I think we have completed. Thank you. Speaking of thank yous, I want to thank our moderators, all of our fabulous panelists, and all of you for coming. And uh, for a little bit of a reward, we have uh, goodies downstairs in the East Foyer. I know we originally said the uh, cafeteria, but it's going to be in the East Foyer on the first floor where you came into the building, um, most likely. So uh, we hope you'll join us. And we can